0: Greetings and welcome to the Reconscious Medical Hour here on the Notorious Adam Dunn Network. We come live at 420-ish every Sunday to bring you the latest, greatest information for mind-expanding, plant medicine, and personal growth. We do all this through the revolutionary and wonderful entheogens Protocols some people might know them as psychedelics, but entheogens is the proper name because it includes all psychedelic um, substances, whether it's morning glory all the way to the peyote cactus and the native ceremonies of the Native Americans and native ceremonies of ayahuasca. And today, it's Dr. Mark with a K, myself, Ross Stevie, and our esteemed guest, Craig Salerno, who we'll get to in just a minute. But first, I want to bring out some really exciting Late breaking news in the progression of entheogens becoming uh, more accepted in a clinical and in in psychiatric treatment. A large scale phase three clinical trials of MDMA treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder were recently approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. This is huge. Some small studies have yielded promising results. If the new trials are successful, ecstasy, known as MDMA, could be approved as a prescription drug, a drug for PTSD. This is really, really exciting. The phase three research, which will include at least 230 patients with PTSD, will be funded by the nonprofit Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which previously sponsored six phase two studies. They treated a total of 130 PTSD patients with MDMA. And the um, results of the first studies showed that up to 90% of the people who participated in these studies found life-changing experiences to where this gateway of entiogens opened up a whole new reality and a whole new world for these people where they could um, stop medicating their specific issues and start embracing their real authentic selves and get on with the positive and wonderful beings that we have chosen to be on this planet to become. So we're really excited that the FDA and other governmental agencies are starting to recognize the importance of not just medicating, but in transforming people's PTSD or, or stress or, um, different psycho psychiatric issues and that there's some hope and opportunity for people to remove from the current medical treatment programs to the self-realization and self-awareness. So we're really, really excited. How about a nice round of applause for the Be on the way, coming live and direct to a community near you. We bring it Every Sunday uh, to the community of you And right now I'd like to jump right in To our great guest today Craig Salerno from Boulder, Colorado He is an LPC and an LAC He was first introduced To the Reconscious Medical Group Through the Boulder Medicinal Mindfulness Um, He's part of the Boulder Ketamine Collective And he's part of the Boulder Wellness Like I said Boulder Wellness Ketamine Collective He's a highly sought after addiction treatment specialist Using entheogens with ketamine for for mental health and for transformation experiences. He's a mental health advocate. He has a a focus of his psychotherapy using entheogens. He's an addictionologist, a clinician, a noble explorer, and an ethnogenic expert. We're really excited to have Craig Salerno, and his business is called the Craig Salerno Counseling where he's doing really revolutionary work, um, helped the world transform to a better place right out of Boulder, Colorado. So welcome Craig to the program. It was my pleasure. What an intro, that was amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, and thanks for leading off with the map stuff. That's pretty, that is an awesome way to enter into this combo, pushing the, pushing the envelope.
0: Yeah, you know, currently in, in our field, um, most of the transformational therapists are using ketamine because it's a legal pharmaceutical that serves as a plant medicine experience. Could you speak to that, Craig, to get us going here? Is ketamine is not really considered plant-based medicine, but it is. Can you give me some clarity on that and help our radio, our radio, our TV, and and viewing audience really understand what plant medicine and how ketamine is part of that journey? sure
1: yeah i mean i loved so i was trained by dr phil wolfson who does the ketamine training center and it was interesting because someone was saying how you know we there's a little bit of an edge because ketamine is a synthetic compound it's not something that grows naturally on the earth and i loved what dr wolfson said he said of course of course it's of the earth you know or of the universe or of this i mean if it's able to be created in this way it's it's part of our toolbox which i really appreciated so yeah it's not a plant medicine per se but at least for us looking to utilize psychedelic medicines it's legal it's available and also it provi- provides really profound impacts and benefits so therapeutically it's a gift to have it on board yeah and i consider it just as powerful as a lot of the other plant medicines that kind of grow naturally
0: i kind of consider it number one in the group just because of the the effects that it has and the and the short duration of, of the transformational experience. Can you speak to that about, you know, how maybe some of the other heavy psychedelics or heavy entheogens can be, you know, very extended hours and hours and hours of journeying. And with ketamine, it's kind of a shortcut. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it's, it's, I think, a beautiful thing that we get to work in kind of this two and a half hour to three hour model, which I think most people know, the MDMA studies, the psilocybin studies you're looking at four hours, six hours, sometimes even longer. And a lot of them have like pretty intense day after hangovers, pretty heavy impact. Ketamine is an up and down ride. You know, typically people are experiencing the antidepressant effects the next couple of days, kind of this nice glow. So yeah, it's nice to be able to work with a medicine that has a little bit shorter of a time frame. And yeah, and in the, in the MDMA studies, I, I know two, two therapists, one will often come in and out, at least with ketamine, you can be in there in the room, be highly attuned for the two and a half to three hours and kind of experience the launch in the fall yeah
2: when you say when you say it's two and a half hours Craig or three hours is that for the journey itself
1: no I mean so the way that we're working therapeutically usually we're doing about 30 minute prep and intention setting and a lot of the ways I work in my sessions we're kind of like grounding landing reminding ourselves what kind of work we're doing for the first 30 minutes of the session the actual ketamine experience I mean it varies so much too I think some people are in 45 minutes to maybe an hour and a half. And then on the back end, really giving space to debrief, kind of talk about what's ha- happened and uh, the impact of the medicine, at least like the more intense psychedelic version, probably 45 minutes to an hour, but kind of like this lingering afterglow where a lot of people do processing. I'll keep them in the office for an additional 45 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes to just kind of debrief.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about intention setting, specifically intention setting that you work with addictions?
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah. So whenever I think of intention setting, I think of two things. I think of where are we hoping to go? So in in utilizing the medicine, what are we really wishing for and hoping for? So that might be sobriety in in a broad sense, but that might also mean like addressing underlying issues that are causing my drug and alcohol use and really just setting the intention and the compass to go towards what we want to go towards. And then part of the intention I hold, too is like, what do we expect to find on the path that might make this difficult, or that might create barriers? And that could be things like trauma and memory recall, negative self-talk, all these things that kind of generate the underlying power of addiction. So our intention is like, where are we going and what might stop us in our tracks that we actually need to work with and, and bring some attention to? So that's kind of like the intention-setting portion.
0: And, you, and, and and when you're when you talking about this, you, you keep speaking of addiction. Is addiction one of the primary um, uh, illnesses that people come to you for?
1: I mean, it's interesting. I think like most of the ketamine research is with treatment resistance and depression. I work primarily right. in, the, in the addiction world. I mean, I've put in over a decade of work in kind of this conventional model of addiction treatment, working in residential programs and intensive outpatient programs. And that's really, I mean, someone told me very early on when I became a therapist, they said, if you want to do powerful work, go to where the suffering is. And the right. deeper it went into addiction, the more I noticed, I mean, you see thousands of people pass away from addiction a year. I mean, it's just a really pervasive, it's a crisis in our world. So, and often the underpinning of addiction is depression, anxiety, trauma. So most people are coming in for treatment resistant depression. That's kind of how people know ketamine, but I'm trying to really expand and just kind of build some evidence that this is a really powerful medicine for addiction specifically. What kind of addictions have you worked with? You name it. We got a little bit of everything. So in terms of your substance addiction, I mean, most of the clients I'm working with are in like pretty active, heavy addiction. So we're talking IV heroin, methamphetamine, daily alcohol use to the point of like pretty intense withdrawal. I mean, you kind of name it, I've seen it. So, and then we do, I mean, we do some process addiction stuff. So we just worked with a client who was eating disorder primary, which isn't a substance abuse addiction, but a very compulsive addictive system, very comparable. And I mean, we saw wonderful benefits with the ketamine series. It was kind of unbelievable. So
0: sex, gambling. How does the experience, real quick, Mark, how does the experience of a permanent personality shift happen? Because that's what you're really talking about with these addictions and compulsive eating disorders. We're looking for permanent personality shifts. How does that actually happen? Because I think that people don't really have a real grip and an understanding of that. That's really for me. I think it's the basis of going beyond your addiction, your compulsive eating behavior. Is that permanent personality shift? How does that take place? Speak to that, please.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll speak to the most recent client that I worked with who who kind of found sobriety through this process. And I think it's a combination of like an, an absolute reframe of what the addiction is serving. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a beautiful thing about ketamine, like new insight and awareness into what this pattern has been doing and how it's been protecting other emotions from being processed. And in some way, the ability to like shift those behaviors away and really do the work that the addiction thinks it's doing. But actually what it's doing is just hitting a big pause button and a blockade to get that work done. So whereas the addiction is serving this purpose to mitigate and to relegate the pain and the way I see it is like the medicine session gives the openness so we can go to the pain and actually address and work with it. And in doing that, usually there are deep personal insights and spiritual insights that come through that. And to me, it's like a, a radical shift in orientation to the addiction. I mean, someone said it was like, Oh my God, this is, this has been a rebellion against my body. This has been a rebellion against my parents. This has been a rebellion against my community. And actually I feel really aligned with the world. Actually I want to be working with the world. I want to feel connected to the world. I'm going in the wrong fucking direction. You know, and it can just be the, these not so subtle cognitive shifts that all of a sudden the drug use feels way less appealing, and it's like a
0: reorientation. It's kind of a beautiful thing to watch. Does that make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. I think Mark and I talk about that a lot in our in our practices. That you know, it's a it's a it's kind of a, a reset, and and being able to look at life from a different perspective. But a lot of times, you know, that trauma comes. You know, people react from their panic button. Can you speak to how these treatments help reduce the panic button to be ha- to have some self awareness happen so that you can embrace and act on this new realized self? Totally. Yeah, that's I think that's the nice thing about ketamine
1: specifically and the the compound of ketamine. So I mean it really targets the the glutamate receptors which a lot of times is like these high alarm bells So as we approach things that are difficult, our body will, I mean, this is similar to the PTSD response, say like, no, 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 not there. You know, too much pain. We can't handle this. And ketamine has this beautiful ability to downregulate the kind of that frozen reactive push away. And actually we can like enter in with a lot more calmness, coolness, awareness, openness, curiosity. And that's what really enables you to like do the quote unquote years of therapy in one day. Because you can just go in and, and the system is way, way less fearful. So you're working with a more regulated nervous system. How, how would you
2: compare the ability to go inward of ketamine to ayahuasca or, or some of the other medications that you've yeah. experienced?
1: Yeah, it's curious. I mean, I've done personal work with ayahuasca and it feels, I don't even know how I would describe the difference. I think one of them, I run an integration group and one of my members always says, they're all taking you into the forest. They're just taking you through different doorways. Ketamine has a very specific doorway. Ayahuasca has a specific doorway, which to me tends, for me personally, it's felt a little bit more um, blowing you up. Where uh, ketamine has like a cool, slow entrance Enthe- point is what it feels like to me. Yeah, gradual.
2: Yeah. So as far as entheogens go, maybe ketamine is a nice way for the inexperienced to start as well. Agreed,
1: yeah, and I think what Stevie was saying with the time, the time part, I mean, it's, you're going to be up and out in not too long, you know, it plays well with others, meaning it, it's not a medicine that has a lot of contraindications, it's pretty safe, people have been using it in hospitals for decades, so we know it's a pretty safe medicine, and yeah, it's, I think it's a great entrance point for people that are trying to use psychedelic medicines for healing, yeah.
2: Have you seen any bad reactions to ketamine in your clients?
1: not yeah, i've seen mild nausea is the f- the furthest i've seen with difficulty and i'm talking like just kind of like a, a little rumble in the belly and a little discomfort but for the most part is a pretty predictable up and down and yeah not a lot of negative impacts such thus far
2: i was i was wondering if you have a success story you'd like to share
1: greg with the ketamine yeah man yeah totally i mean it, the first, the first client I worked with who came to me addiction primary, so that was the main reason he came to me, I think he's, this is one of my, the most powerful cases I've seen too. He had never done traditional talk therapy, talk therapy or ketamine, but it had been in and out of the 12-step model for many, many years. He even opened a sober living program. I mean, just an unbelievable, incredible character, just really potent, really intelligent, but has a history of just going in and out of like deep alcohol addiction. And when he came to me, I mean, he was drinking 750 milliliters of vodka every other day, vomiting blood, just, I mean, the most intense drinking you can think of. And on the verge of divorce, partner's kind of pushing him in to do this and says, like, you've kind of tried everything. Like, why don't you go try the psychedelic medicine thing? So we worked together. We did pretty much a session a week. We did four or five prep sessions I really was advocating him giving me at least a week of sobriety before we started. He was able to get me three or four days, two or three days, I forget exactly how many it was. We started the ketamine treatments and it was immediate abstinence, which is kind of an unbelievable feat. And we did a weekly, probably for two months, three months, ketamine treatments, really going in addressing kind of some core core stuff that he wanted to work on, relationship with dad, Just history in prison, just intense trauma that he really hasn't kind of walked through. And over time, you can just see him relax, 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 and kind of really do some deep work. And just outside of the ketamine sessions, just becoming like really regulated, reporting that the cravings were going down, no relapse. And he made it, he's seven months plus currently. We're no longer working with ketamine. We're just doing integration work. And he is happy as a clam. Marriage is saved hasn't drank since day one of ketamine. I mean, it's been kind of a miraculous thing to watch. And incredible. Yeah, I mean, he'll say it too. He's just like, I don't know if it's the ketamine, if it's the therapy, if it's the combination of both, but this shit changed my life to save my life. Just one of those beautiful, complete shifts. Like you said, Stevie, like kind of this shift in personality and just through the ketamine work, so much shift in kind of his spiritual understanding of who and what he is in the world and what his path is. And just a very clear image, like it's not, the addictive road That is not what I meant here for this is, That's done I've turned And I mean it's just beautiful To see him where he's at So
0: Well you know Craig The 12 steps thing uh, Relies a lot on the higher power I went through some of that In 1979 actually With some of the 12 steps program And it was always talk of the higher power The studies show that with um, Antigen therapy That The people That went into therapy That were atheists 90% came out the other side with some realization of a higher power, a God, a jaw, some higher power than themselves. What do you think is the thing that's making the 12 steps not really stick for your client, but this is what, like you, you said, your client said they weren't sure if it was ketamine or the therapy or whatever. What do you think it is? that's making this work so much more lasting and pertinent and not trading one addiction for another, which is what I consider the 12 steps. It's kind of like trading one addiction for another. What What is it that's making this not that addiction trading traits?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think the the thing I like about this is in the 12-step work, I mean, it's a lot of grinding. And, I mean, you're working with sponsors and, and trying to, like, elicit the spiritual experience. The fortunate thing about psychedelics, it is not subtle. I mean, it, it will walk you to spiritual thoughts and feelings pretty quickly and pretty immediately and kind of confront you with things that, I mean, there's no way to deny or disintegrate away from them. They need to be integrated. Whereas I think a 12-step model, I think a lot of people get to that spiritual landing point of doing the deep work and the list of the resentments and the forgiveness and can experience and blossom kind of that spiritual opening. But psychedelics, I think it's just like a quicker pathway. And to me, it's just, yeah, I just keep thinking, it's not very subtle. I mean, it just walks you to very... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> profound powerful experiences that are right in front of you that you know i mean they they're real they're genuine there you feel your heart open you feel compassion you're like wow okay you know you even have an experience of a direct higher power in the moment it's just, you can't wrestle with that it's just so alive so yeah i think that's
0: you're so, you're so passionate about it how did you get into this work
1: into the psychedelic medicine work in general yes yeah, I mean, I, I read Rick Strassman's book when I was, I forget, he did DMT, The Spirit Molecule. I read his book, I think I must have been 18, and I was just starting to think about what I wanted to do. I was studying psychology, and I was like, oh my goodness, psychedelic therapy feels like the road, you know? So it's interesting. I always kind of had that as some idea of where I wanted to go, because I was just so enamored by how substances work with the mind, and just like these endless endless ways the consciousness can expand, and what we can experience, so... Enamored by that, and then I started working the addiction field because, I mean, a, a dear friend of mine kind of pointed me in that direction and said, hey, if you want to become a therapist, you know, go to where the pain is. Addiction looks like a pretty powerful place to work. So I just kind of waltzed myself in there, and I feel like these paths have been merging for the last 10 years of my life, and finally they've kind of they've met, you know, the addiction world that I've walked for a long time and doing work in that realm, and then my interest in
0: psychedelics, and they've kind of finally found their point. Well, you know, maybe 10 years ago that junction wasn't available. Because this is a really new, uh, I mean it's not a new science, but it's a new science. It's it's new in therapy and it's and it's being newly accepted by the powers that be as a legitimate and as you said, kind of a fast track to get to the same place. You know, I personally, uh when I was in the 8th grade, you know, they teach you how to write a research paper. Okay, you got to write a research paper, pick a topic. I picked LSD and they were all like this is like i'm gonna guess 74 and all the teachers were like okay like what are we gonna do with this Virginia kid in West texas who's taking this research topic as lsd and i got so into it reading about albert hoffman i went to the college library near to where i lived that i was just reading all this stuff and i was just do research paper that's really thorough and 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 passionate paper and my teachers read it and they said well we're not sure about the, the, the substance, but your passion and, and, and your amount of research you did in this is an A. It's probably one of the only A's I ever got back then, you know? And it was all about having that passion. What, what is the passion for you, Craig, that keeps you focused on this? Because, you know, in, in the therapeutic world, a lot of times you find yourself being around, involved, and embracing a lot of trauma. How do you keep that passion going for yourself and not become that traumatic self that's around you all the time?
1: Totally. Yeah. That's an awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm so curious about yours too, around like why I was the same way. I mean, I read about LSD and psilocybin. I just was like, whoa, this seems fascinating. I just, I don't even know why it hooked me the way it did, but very similar. I was writing papers on it and getting really intrigued. Uh, but the way I of the swamp. So again, I'll use another ketamine patient's kind of analogy. And this was in the ketamine space that she said this. She said, I realize the pain and the suffering and the trauma are, are just the roots. It's the roots that are grounding us in and holding so we can eventually blossom and kind of make our way out. So again, with that like dynamic reframe, even being in intense suffering and working in the addiction field and seeing people relapse, it doesn't register as traumatic as it used to because I really believe in suffering as part of the liberation and part of what like, makes us eventually blossom. and. I know the Eastern psychology traditions, they always say like the, the lotus flower emerging out of the shit. You got really, to really appreciate the shit because that's ultimately is the fodder and the, the fuel for what blossoms and just growing to like really respect and appreciate that and to learn to kind of like love the suffering. That has been like a really profound teaching for me. And again, one that I think I've taken from the psychedelic experience in a big way.
0: Mm. Loving the suffering rather than becoming a victim of the suffering.
1: Yeah, or thinking that it's wrong or that it shouldn't be there. To me, it's yeah, it's gotcha. almost like it's it's the prologue to our blossoming. The suffering and the story of our suffering is like the pre preconditions to things that then emerge out of us that give us path and you know purpose. To me, that you know another thing I've heard in a ketamine space from a client is all my pain has purpose. All my pain has purpose. And like, what a dynamic shift of the mind. So
2: it can give an acceptance and an understanding that we haven't had
1: before.
0: So yeah, complete reframe. For all those are just joining us, you're inside the Reconscious Medical Hour. It's Iman Rossa Stevie with Dr. Mark with a K. Our esteemed guest from Boulder, Colorado, on this program is Craig Salerno, and he's from the Boulder Ketamine Collective and runs his private practice called Craig Salerno Counseling. And he's a, a noble explorer into this uncharted field of using entheogens for transformative experience to create the world to really be a better place. I I think at this point, Craig, one of the most important things that makes this work different than, um, using antigens in a non-token environment is set and setting. Can you talk to, uh, us and our wonderful viewing audience here on the notorious Adam Dunn network. Can you talk to us about the importance of set and setting in these, uh, Intergen therapy practices.
1: Totally. Yeah, well, I think that's... When we talk about psychedelics for therapy, our mindset is that we're, we're targeting difficult spaces that people really want to grow and work through. So, I mean, that, that already changes a lot of the intention, whereas kind of like the recreational use of psychedelics, which I have no issue with, I think it could be very profound. At least the way we're using ketamine, people are coming in, they're reporting that they're anxious and depressed, and they really set the compass to work towards those goals so when you talk about mindset, at least, they know that they're going in and kind of utilizing these substances to do work, to do deep therapeutic work, to lean into the difficult stuff, to face things that feel scary to face. And that mind state alone, I think the, the bravery and the willingness to say yes to that, I think you already do a lot of healing just by saying yes. So that mindset to me is huge. And then in terms of the setting, I mean, we just build really beautiful, comfy offices. And um, at least the way we're utilizing ketamine, people are laying down, they have an eye shade on, we're playing music, um, oftentimes instrumental, just beautiful guitars and flutes and things that inspire a lot of emotional states. And when you think of a setting, I mean, it's not not a rager out in the desert. It's kind of like in a therapy office, eye shades, sitting next to a very trusted companion who's there to guide you. And to support you and even to push you kind of into spaces that you know you want to go into but maybe feel some fear to go into and that setting yes it's a whole other ball game i'm late in palo santo we're having a good time of developing kind of the energy but i mean they're really internal and the setting is in here for a lot of my clients you know
2: it sounds like it's a mixture of ceremonial and clinical
1: yeah that's what mm-hmm. i like to combine i think that's the nice thing having worked with ayahuasca and traditional kind of Shipibo style. Just seeing the way ritual and intention and ceremony are used in combination with a psychedelic medicine, there is nothing like it. Same with sitting in the Native American church ceremonies, peyote ceremonies. I mean, there's a profundity that comes with ceremonial organization and intention. And I, I love to combine those, kind of like that dry clinical and like the beauty. There's, there's a nice cross in there. What's the style
2: of your ceremonial touch?
1: I mean, for me, it's a lot. I mean, it's very mindfulness based. So it's really utilizing mindfulness and meditation to drop in and to set intentions in the start. Usually, we'll actually have them light a candle or make somewhat of an altar. And to me, the altar is just a reminder of where we're going, some photos of people that we want as allies on our journey. They'll usually light a candle and just set an overall intention. You know, take the medicine. We say a very quick kind of safe travels. Remember to say yes to everything you find. You'll be back and then they will drop in the music will start and that's kind of the uh, ritual orientation to it
2: it sounds uh, it sounds a little bit ethereal to me i'm wondering if if any like how your conservative patients react to that kind of a setting craig
1: yeah i don't i don't make anyone do anything i'll usually say do you want to make this more ritualized what feels good to you and you know if someone says like, i would say 90% of people that come in are like let's make it as ceremonial as possible and then there's an additional 10 that just kind of want to come in work with the medicine and, you know, not, not build the altar, not light the candle. And I'm fully down with that. You know, I, I like to be client centered.
2: That 10% can still go intentional and integration. <clears throat> just,
0: yeah. Yeah, they go just as deep. Well, you know, it's yeah. kind of the thing. I think that it's, it's not white coats and stethoscopes. And it's also not, you know, Native American, Peruvian in the Amazon jungle. It's a hybrid. And it's, um, and it's kind of, as, as Craig said earlier, it's kind of a meeting of two journeys and one center spot. You know, Craig, something you said really clicked with me when you said it. Say yes to everything that comes. Can you dig deeper into that?
1: Totally. Yeah. So a lot of the orientation of how I work, and you'll read this in a lot of the psychedelic literature with kind of the therapeutic orientation. You really trust the healing intelligence of the body and the spirit and the mind and particularly in psychedelic medicine spaces, you'll get images, feelings, memories, things that come up that might scare you, confuse you. And our overall attitude is say yes to whatever arises because we really need to trust kind of the system knows how to heal itself. And it'll use metaphor and imagery and it'll use all types of stuff. And we just really encourage people like don't, don't question, don't try to figure it out. Take a deep breath and lean into whatever you see and whatever you find and just trust it has a healing wisdom to it and that that attitude to me is i just think that's beautiful beyond the medicine space yeah
2: i think if you say no that's single-handedly what can create a a bad experience a negative
1: experience absolutely yeah to me the the bad trip is that is is the
0: halting well how do you get to the when when does this you know i'm i'm acting as if i've never done this (laughs) and maybe some of our listening audience hasn't when does this um, discussion happen while the person is under the uh the antigen therapeutic uh journey is it like are they speaking while this is happening or uh, educate us on how that whole timing goes down with integration and, and talking about what you experience and actually the experience because i think they're separate yeah
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we'll do, we'll do a handful of prep psychotherapy sessions. So we're looking three to six sessions, depending on the acuity of the issue that we're dealing with. And to me, the prep is like learning the attitude of what to bring into the medicine space. Like Mark was saying, developing the intentions and to really like orient our mind to our journey. So by the time they go into the medicine space, they've probably heard me say, lean in, say yes, 35 plus times. Okay. With the prep is that yeah, they should they should feel coached. And that's where I, I mean, that's where I have a lot of kind of pushback at like a lot of the current models of like the recreational ceremonial use. When you don't do prep, you don't you don't know where someone's going, you don't know the history they're bringing. At least when we get to work with it therapeutically, we get to know their history. We we really dial in where we want to go. You kind of get to know the defenses a little bit and what's likely to come up. So by the time they ingest medicine, I mean, we really know a mapping of their mind and where they want to go, which is really beautiful. And they've already gotten the mantras and the, you know, it reduces the risk of the bad trip and, and things like that, because we've kind of already mapped a lot of stuff out.
0: Yeah, And so, so when, when does it come where you dig into what they experienced?
1: So we'll usually do, I mean, it depends. So we do integration. Some people are writing us emails and journaling. Some people are coming in and seeing us individually. So they'll do a pretty fair debrief after the direct ketamine experience up and down about 30 minutes to an hour of debriefing and kind of integrating. And I usually end up giving my clients homework. You know, this is what really arose. What I want you to contemplate this week is this bring this to your yoga practice. You know, like you also set a statement around your relationship. I want you to lean in this week and really work on this thing in your relationship. There's all types of stuff that comes up and the integration is just like putting the uh, wheels to the pavement. Is that the right thing? Just like the insights that arise, let's really like put the things down and get them really running in the behavioral sense. And then after the series of ketamine treatments, we'll usually do six in a month. We really focus on weekly integration therapy. And, you know, we we have an integration circle, a group with a bunch of people that are healing through psychedelics. So they're connecting with people that way. And that's where a lot of the integration happens of like, what do we do with this? How do we make this stick day to day? How do we make sure we don't need the medicine to go there? Those are the fun questions.
2: Do some of your patients do only group integrations then?
1: And not the individual? Yeah. They'll always do integration on the back end of the ketamine session, so at least right. the debrief. But, yeah, some people will do a medicine medicine session Monday, group session Wednesday, back in the office for a medicine session Monday, and things like that. How much are medicine sessions
2: with you, Greg?
1: They vary. Boulder Wellness Ketamine Collective, they kind of vary depending on the the, the route of the medicines, so the intramuscular doses are a little bit more expensive. You'll need a medical provider in the room. If you're working with a lozenge ketamine and just a therapist, you're looking at a three hour session for around $300. Oh, wow. So someone would get you for
2: three hours for $300 and yep. the experience, that's a lot. Compared to these IV ketamine clinics where you go in and you get like 40 minutes of a sub-psychedelic dose, no debrief, no intention. For like $400, they're getting uh, a full-on uh, three-hour therapeutic transformative session for 300 Yeah, I mean, yeah. To me, there's no comparison. No comparison.
0: Or, or what, about, what about checking into an inpatient that costs you sixty, hundred thousand dollars dollars and you come out with 12 steps and a caffeine addiction?
1: <sighs> Bingo, yeah. In comparison, and that's the thing. So I want to acknowledge, too, at least with the cost, we do encourage people to do a pretty intensive set of treatments right up front. So this is a cumulative medicine. It works best back to back. So we're advocating people to do six sessions in four weeks, particularly, I mean, people that are in really deep, either in addiction or treatment resistant depression. So yeah, $300 for the three hours. And we'd like to see you Monday, Wednesday for four weeks in a row. So, I mean, it, it'll rack up uh, you know, it's, I wish this was covered by insurance and there was a better financial kind of back into this, but in comparison to, yeah, Stevie, like you're saying, the treatment model and a lot of different models, you're, you're actually saving quite a bit of money. And if it kind of...
2: Greg, hey, what, if, what if someone, though, isn't suffering from a life-threatening illness and they still want to have a transformative experience to move beyond some trauma with ketamine? Is it still this multiple thousand-dollar investment of six treatments? Or do you think someone could have... Uh, one, two, or three journeys with ketamine, spread out over months, that that build. Obviously,
1: you can tell my bias. Yeah, uh, no, but I appreciate that. Yeah, I don't think you need to do the series. We advocate it just because the results we've seen with that model have been pretty profound. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at someone who's done kind of the six sessions, did prep, did the six sessions over the course of the month, and then did the integration. I mean, the, the profundity of those cases really stick out. But I agree. I mean, if it's something that isn't. Let's say you're dealing with treatment-resistant depression, but you're generally functioning. You know, you're not like in immediate need. You're not suicidal. I think like exactly what you're talking about. Slower treatments work, and we can just do a session, integrate, check in to see if we even need to go back into the space. My ideal is if everyone just did one session and it worked, I'd stop the ketamine immediately. I'd love that.
2: <laughs> well, you brought up an, an an interesting point when you said that the results that you've seen with these six sessions over a month are, are really impressive. And is that from mild to severe diagnoses. So do you think like everyone that does this, no matter if it's really a, a, a sick clinical case or someone wanting to have a transformative wellness type experience would still benefit from a six pack?
1: Yeah, at least a cumulative treatment. So I don't think it needs to be six within a month, but I think working with the medicine in cumulation, it, it changes the experience. I've worked with people that have done, let's say one, one a month, and we'll experience a reduction in the depression, kind of like openness. I mean, there's nothing comparable to working with this medicine in succession. It does. I just think the way it lights the brain up. I mean, if you look at it, it's hitting every receptor in the book. And if you get it's that. It's not
2: just the hitting of the receptors, man. What's that? It's, it's not just the hitting of the receptors. You are getting a cumulative effect of, of hitting those NMDA receptors, serotonergic receptors, dopaminergic um, opiate receptors over and over. But what's really doing it is those continued transformative experiences that build upon each other with the succession of treatments.
1: Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the combo. Because people go back, right?
2: It's like you'll you'll go back journey after journey kind of to a similar place. um, And it gets stronger, right, those realizations.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's almost like they get compounded and reinforced. I think the more often you get to work with the medicine and go into that, exactly what you're saying. It's like they almost, the roots go in deeper each time you kind of travel.
0: Well, in, in, in any discipline, um, you know, a workout program in the gym, you go once a month, you'll get a little bit of benefits. You go tw- twice a month, you go every day, you know, the everyday person. It continues to do the homework because basically what I heard you say, Craig, and I was like, "Oh no, man, he's really going to give me a bunch of homework." But that's where the where the where you said the what is it, Mark, where the pay the tires hit the pavement. The <laughs> rubber hits the road. <laughs> that's what to said. Yeah, you know, where the rubber meets the road. Where the rubber meets the road is the homework, and just like your bicep muscle, it needs to be worked and worked and worked to build that strength. Your mind is also a muscle, Agreed. and through consecutive repetitive works then it becomes the new norm i mean i don't really like to use that word so much right now because it's got some weird vibes to it but the new norm that we're talking about is the realized self and moving beyond that oh i experienced that it become i am that totally
1: well said beautifully said you
0: know and how, what is what is the key as repetitive is one thing, but what is the key to I am that? How does that, where does that rubber hit the, the pavement or how you say that? Uh, wait, I, I didn't catch what you said. We're, can you repeat the question? And so like, how, how does it, is it just a repetitive nature of of where it becomes the new norm, the new realized self person? You know, because Mark and I talk a lot about you know, the he brings up the scientific aspects of the in something something receptors and all that stuff too, and it just kinda goes over my layman's head. And I kinda see it as as that the repetitive nature of it. How do those things work together? The clinical, the chemical, the brain, the repetitiveness, and how does that all like come together into one? Is it just repetitive nature, you think? I think it's a combination.
1: I think what the medicines do in a really profound way is like increase your window of tolerance and like align your truths and your knowing about yourself and the universe and where mm-hmm. things stand. And to me, the integration and the psychotherapy is to keep the window open. So when you notice it shifting and all of our old shit's coming back, we learn the skills and the tools to kind of re-regulate back to how wide the tolerance can be when we're in a medicine space. And then the other thing with our align- alignment once we come to these core truths and these shifts and these cognitive reframes, we need to live from those if we're going to actually change and like emerge as a new person. So to me, like you align people, you widen their tolerance for the medicine work, you enter them back into the world. The world is going to like kind of shake them out of alignment again. And to me, the integration part is like, how do we continue to find the ability to stay in our new alignment? And that's where I think the integration stuff and the psychotherapy is really helpful because I think everyone's had like the immensely impactful profound mind shifting psychedelic experience and then you go two three weeks and you kind of lose the allure and the touch of it and to me that's where the integration work comes in Of like how do we keep it how do we integrate it so it feels day to day and before you know it
0: we're yeah living from a new truth yeah say that again the cognitive what cognitive retraining cognitive what did you say yeah we can just experience
1: such a big shift and the idea is like we can feel that and then the idea of how do we root that and keep that and live from that place from now on is like a whole other ball ballgame. So I think that's where the integration and the psychotherapy is really helpful. You know, you right. get the it's like it's almost like the medicines retrain you and then you can regress and go right back to the old asshole you were. Or you can really learn to live from these new spaces and have someone hold you accountable and be supporting with you, keeping you in that space. And that's to me the, uh, the beauty of integration.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I like that cognitive reset, you know, and that's where this uh, entheogen works has the, I think, a little more stay power than some of the protocols that have been been used for the last decades to help people um, become, you know, their more realized self. And, And for me, that's where, you know, all of this is really pointing is Becoming the new expanded version of you, the new reauthenticized person of you, and it, I, to me, a lot of it comes you know who's in the driving wheel, and when we talk about you know resetting the panic button, well, how about removal of the panic button and replace the panic button with the gratitude button, mm. and those 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 kind of things become the the self awareness that it takes to be able to just take a moment look from the higher self, observe what's going on and make a decision of who you want to be the driver. The guy that's hit the panic button, you know, the one that's gripping the steering wheel so hard their knuckles are white, or do you want to be that relaxed person who's just cruising down the road on cruise control, you know, and having that mindfulness to make that decision, which allows the space for the new realized self to really manifest and become the the driver of the of the vehicle totally it reminds me of something you said right before we started
1: this chat which you were talking about the importance of a sense of humor too
0: mm-hmm.
1: and next to the gratitude button kind of like that you know it's just the the humor of the vehicle we're riding in in the physical body and just yeah like all the attempts we make to preserve ourselves or to save face or to Whatever. I'm like, there's so many interesting and kind of funny ways that we protect ourselves as opposed to learning to sit back and take a deep breath and just kind of let things unfold. And yeah, I agree. I'm like the gratitude and the humor, all those are like huge allies in this, uh, you know, like changing who we are and how we
0: show up in the world. Well, you know, we, we have the opportunity, you know, and a lot of times I, I get it when, you know, you're heavily addicted to something, you're throwing up blood. It's pretty serious, you know, and, when you're, you know, having thoughts of suicide is pretty serious. But if we can maybe not take ourselves quite so serious and be willing to enjoy the ride, laugh at ourselves, laugh at our mistakes, you know, embrace our humanness, which will allow us the grace and uh, to uh, just not be so hard on ourselves and to 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 you know enjoy the ride, giggle some, laugh some. You know, and and my health issue right now, one of the uh, things that I need to work more on is laughter. One of the best medicines, you know, and there's nothing like a heavy antigen uh, recreational journey to, you know, instill some serious (laughs) laughter, you know, and whether it comes from a funny movie or a thought that someone said that makes you chuckle in yourself. I mean, that emotional shift from destitute chuckling you know, crying and laughter are the same emotion. They're just two different sides of the same emotion. And so a lot of times when things are really dread, so, you know, people that I'm involved with sometimes get upset with me because I laugh. And I say, well, I really have two choices. I can laugh or cry, and laughter just feels better. Mm. So we're here on the Reconscious Medical Hour to help everybody feel better. And one of the ways is to educate ourselves and to learn about some of this revolutionary work that's being done. Our special guest is Craig Salerno and he is from the Boulder Ketamine Collective. He runs his own um, business called Craig Salerno Counseling where his uh, focus is to help people with addiction and to retrain their their beings to uh, move beyond addiction and move into the self-satisfying gratitude person. Craig. Could you speak to us a little bit about it? Do you see any differences in addictions, whether it's to food or opiates or alcohol? Does your protocol change much depending on what people's addiction or is? The addiction, the addiction, it doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah, that's a curious question. I feel like each one, I feel like it's similar to when we were talking about the different types of psychedelics. I think like they're all in and around the same territory, the addictions, they all just have like different trademarks and signatures, but a lot, of, a lot of them to me are usually trauma-informed in some way. And they're, they're really a way to like mitigate and manage pain. To me, that's I see all addictions kind of through that same lens. And they're just highly protective, but also highly compulsive systems. In terms of why people choose the drug of choice, I think there is, and Mark, I'd actually be curious if you feel into this too. I mean, there's definitely a difference between like the archetype of the individual who finds the IV heroin and the archetype of the individual who finds the alcohol. And I always get curious about like the, the neurochemistry of each of those substances and if it actually teaches us a bit of what this person's looking for. So what
2: about I- anxiety and alcohol. I, I often, because alcohol does treat and numb anxiety, right? It works on the same receptors that benzodiazepines do oh, and like- with opiates. it's Opiates are the ultimate number. There's nothing else that numbs like IV heroin. So your people who have experienced severe trauma are often driven to opiates
1: bingo yeah that's i mean i feel i feel the same thing and i think that all orient how i work with the client in some way yeah i can make an educated guess where some of the core trauma is and what it what it's in and around and yeah particularly like you're saying with the alcohol and the anxiety and the
2: depressives with cocaine and amphetamines
1: totally yeah yeah yeah, I mean, there's flavors of each substance and what potential skills and support people need, and that really informs the way I show up. As for the actual ketamine space and doing the medicine work, it doesn't change. I mean, it's the same deal. Like, the healing intelligence is inside of you. The, the road to recovery and to whatever your recovery wants to look like is internal, and we're going we're gonna to find and orient to it. That work stays the same. Have
2: you ever seen anyone with a ketamine addiction or a ketamine dependence, Greg?
1: Totally, yeah. I mean, I've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients. I've seen two that were like, I would say pretty intense intramuscular ketamine addicts. And both of them were highly depressed to the point of suicidal and on like an intense spiritual quest through the IM ketamine and are stuck on rinse and repeat. And yeah, it's only been two of them. But yeah, I mean, there, there is an abuse potential with ketamine. It's worth acknowledging It's so it's so rare in comparison to the other medicines, but I've seen yeah two cases that were curious. Um, Yeah, and I I didn't. We didn't work with ketamine with
0: those guys. What about um, we're talking about substance abuse? What about mindset abuse, where people are addicted to negative thought patterns? People are addicted to um, uh, traumatizing others because they were traumatized, and I think that. Uh, you know, in a lot of these discussions, it's all framed about about addiction and PTSD. And to me, the the what you alluded to also, Craig, that the the real basis of all this is mindset. And, it, and with alcohol, it's one mindset. With opiates, it's another. With cocaine, it's another. But aren't they all kind of based on a social domestication where? The a person believes that they were traumatized and have become addicted to that negative mindset?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear more of what you think, too, as you share that. I mean, I, yeah, I'm really picking up what you're putting down. What else?
0: Do you mind sharing? You're- well, to me, when you grow up, you experience things as a child. And as a child, you may not have the intellectual or emotional maturity to really grasp what's going on around you. And in that, you formulate thought patterns that you heavily invest into. And sometimes those thought patterns you're heavily investing into are a made-up illusion to feed the pain body. Edgar yep. what it totally speaks about the pain body. It's a real body within the body, and it must be fed. And if we don't designate a driver, then the least common denominator is going to be the one that's going to step up and take control. So with my son, I speak to him a lot about designating a driver with your emotional vehicle and deciding who you, who's at the driving wheel here. And is it your perception of experiences that you may not have had the emotional uh, maturity or intellectual maturity to overstand? So you create this imagery of what it was. And it, it got real clear to me, Craig, when uh, my son was in high school and they started talking, everybody was writing a paper about women and how women are, have been so um, abused and um, what's it called, Object, objectification of women. And I'm looking at these Durango girls that are from pretty good families, that have had pretty good lives, and it almost seems like they were trying to come up with something that made their lives not be as full and as a lotus flower as it could be. They're almost like looking for something that can make them not feel their full empowered self. And it really disturbed me because I, I think that there's a lack of history a lot of times and like the women's suffrage movement and what my mother went through. So let's see my mother would be close to hundred years old right now, she was still alive. And what she experienced as a woman growing up in the thirties, forties, fifties, the roles that women played, et cetera. And now we've, we've come a long way. We have a long way to go still, but we've come a long way with women rights and, and the recognition of their emotional guidance. And I often feel like that there should be just as much focus put on the triumphs and the successes of the advancement of the human race and women in particular, and less focus on you know objectification or you know using women as a sex symbol. I mean, basically, you know the 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 sexual drive is a prime uh, primitive part of our beings, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with looking at a woman and thinking that she's beautiful. And I'm kind of a dumbass, kind of straight-up guy, and I say things probably that I shouldn't, you know, but I turned to one of my, uh, a group of my kids' friends, you know, and I said, dude, she is hot. And they all looked at me like shocked. I'm like, dude, I'm married. I'm not trying to horn dog. I'm just saying she's beautiful. She's gorgeous. She's walking beauty. And they're like, oh, my God, you can't say that. And I'm like, why not? It's true. And I'm not trying to sexually objectify her. I'm acknowledging her beauty on the planet and acknowledging man and woman's role to be, you know, natively attracted to each other. And I think that a lot of times that there's this um, created notion of having to have some trauma when it's really not that bad. I've traveled around the world and I've seen some pretty bad circumstances. And I think that a little history a little acknowledgement and a little gratitude for how far we've come can really lessen the 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 amount of trauma that people are experiencing. And you know, I thank job that we have these protocols in in intergenerational psychotherapy to give people a, a a quick vision of how good it can be. Like, do we do we really have to take ourselves so serious? Do we really have to be so tense and tight? How about a little celebration and humor?
1: Yeah, I mean, two things that I really pick up when I hear you sharing that. One, which is, yeah, the compulsive addiction we have to stories in general about who we are. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, like what our suffering, what our suffering is, Yeah, who we're supposed to be, all that. I mean, that. yeah, that could be as deep of a dick, an addiction as anything. And yeah, mm-hmm. this desire to kind of like liberate from that. And to me, yeah, there's like two two truths. The relative truth of like what I've experienced as a human on the planet, which can be filled with pain and suffering. And this ultimate truth of like, What are we beyond the human body? What are we beyond the story of Mark, the story of Steve, the story of Craig? And to me, that's where there's a lot of levity available. And like you're saying, gratitude and kind of letting go of some of the pain body story. That's what I'm kind of thinking of when I hear you kind of share what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, let go. You know what I mean? Let go. Yeah. You keep swimming upstream. You're gonna get tired. You're gonna end up going downstream anyway. So how about swim downstream in the sea of consciousness and enjoy the ride and and keep yourself afloat. Don't let yourself sink. Keep yourself afloat. But we don't really have to fight and struggle, do we? I just not. I'm, I'm, for me, I just nice. I hold the ultimate human potential is higher than we're giving ourselves credit for being. Maybe uh-huh. it's what I'm saying. Uh huh. What do you think, Mark, in your practice as a psychiatrist, you've seen people with a variety of, of different uh, substance abuse and mindset abuse, et cetera. Do you see any kind of commonality there to where uh, people just can't grasp what I'm speaking of and just become that ultimate, ultimate vision of themselves without some kind of highway? Because oftentimes a substance abuse leads to mindset
2: abuse. That pattern of guilt over the substance abuse gets addictive as well. So you get into this pattern of guilt and shame and then medicate, medicating away that guilt and shame with the substance, which then feeds into more guilt and shame that you want to medicate away again. So unfortunately, it's a very linked dyad,
1: Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at that point, yeah. you're today, and I think this is why you see people who are deeply substance addicted, kind of abandon everything and just pursue their drug of choice and abandon the food, the relationships. It's like the part of the brain they're working in, this kind of like fear, fear-based, highly protective kind of primal center. It's like it, it almost doesn't have the space to flash on something greater and something bigger, which again is, you want to talk about the beauty of psychedelics. It doesn't matter how deep you are into your emotional suffering, it will open a doorway for you to feel some of that. And to me, that is a beautiful benefit of even taking someone in active addiction and utilizing a psychedelic medicine, you might be completely stuck in this protect, guilt shame cycle and it will whoop give you a slight re welcoming to the other side, which is there's another pathway available. You know, and it's not it's not only about protection and your drug of choice. It's about deep meaning and purpose and relationships and gratitude and love. You know, and again, you, you can't unsee that or unfeel that when it comes to you delivered that way. So
0: what do you see as the future of this work? We're kind of at baby steps now. What does the future hold for inter therapy and integration work? Totally. I mean, my,
1: my hope beyond ketamine is that we just get access and exposure to a lot of different psychedelic medicines as clinicians. So I'm talking about the psilocybins, the ibogas, the ayahuascas, And ideally, I mean, I would love the vision of having people come in to do assessments and really kind of organizing an intention around what medicine works for them having them be in retreats, retreat-like, clinical-like spaces with professionals and people that are geared to sit with people and help them move through things. And to me, it's really about like liberating and healing people as best we can. And these medicines are an unbelievable way to do that. So my vision in the far run is just like, let's, let's continue to do the research to show that these are really effective and that people don't have to suffer and die daily from addiction. There's, there's quicker ways out and we should have full permission. This is an absolute crisis, particularly with addiction. We should have full permission to help liberate people out of that because people who recover, particularly from drug and alcohol addiction, are magical, powerful beings. They do incredible things in the world. They are deeply creative and deeply spiritual people. And if they die yearly and we don't get to liberate them before they give their gift to the world, it's a fucking shame in my opinion. So my thing is like, let's just find ways to heal people that are suffering and really let them give their gift to the world. That's why I do the work I do.
2: Man, thank you so much for reminding us. Uh, these are beautiful people oftentimes these people get scapegoated and judged and and just shamed and by their families and their loved ones and their partners and i agree with you man these are some of the most beautiful artistic passionate wonderful people that i've treated that i've known that i have personally loved, man
1: in many ways i think they're, they're feelers and they hold the shadow for a lot of us which is why I think a lot of people point at them and say, you know, drug abusers, how dare they, what about... To me, They, you know, they feel things very intensely and they're trying to adapt to a system that is like pretty heartless often. And to me, when you, when you feel that deeply, you will find a way to take care of yourself. And unfortunately, addiction is one of those ways people try to do it. But when they liberate out of that shit and they find their road, it's, it's a magnificent thing.
2: A lot of us might be one traumatic event away from this street or that addiction. Agreed. Some of us
0: might be in it and not even know it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Totally. We you know I think this we should we should limitate this program to those creative people who are misunderstood, whether it's Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janice Joplin, some of the cultural icons of our generation that have been thoroughly misunderstood and and aren't able to weren't able to have access to this medicine. You know, we give thanks to the Adam Dunn Network for giving us Full permission to bring some of these revolutionary thoughts that may not be um, status quo yet, but as Craig said, soon this will be status quo. We will be accepted and not stigmatized as humans that are having a, ter- a, a, a troubling experience or as clinicians and light workers within this field that, to remove the stigmatization of, of this drug war mentality that is just that really held the movement back. And it's really exciting to see the FDA um, approving the third clinical trial for MDMA research. It's really encouraging to see people like Craig that they're using ketamine to embrace and offer the opportunity for people to move beyond the tortured, um, traumatized self and become a world of realized beings. We're all one step away from being those realized beings. We're right there at the road. And During these times of the coronavirus has been a time where we can take this as an opportunity to uh, lament crisis or we can use it as an opportunity to become our realized selves and create sustainability within our emotional and physical beings. And, and we uh, here at the Reconscious Medical Hour encourage everyone to embrace your true self. And if you need help, reach out. There's always someone out there that cares about you. Don't feel alone, because you'll see in the programs to come in the future. There's a lot of us doing this work, and we're here for you. And if you ever need them, they're here for you. Whether it's Craig or counseling, or the Reconscious Medical Group, or Boulder Medicinal Mindfulness. There's a, a, globally there's a host of resources, and I encourage anyone. Is watching this program or know someone that needs this type of attunement to please allow them to watch it, to recharge themselves and give themselves the opportunity to live a life of joy and humor and gratitude and embrace the dark side of yourself to move through it, through whatever vehicle it takes to get there. But we're all going to arrive at the same destination. And I'm honored to arrive at the destination uh, with these amazing group of people here on the Reconscious Medical Hour. We're here every Sunday at 5.20, um, uh, 4.20 uh, Mountain Standard Time. That's 5.20 Central Time. That's 6.20 East Coast Time. And it's 3.20 West Coast Time for those here in the States. And we encourage everyone to uh, also go forward to our YouTube channel where this program will be available for eternity to give us your comments and suggestions and be part of this groundbreaking revolutionary movement of having full permission to be the full authentic selves that you can become. This is the Reconscious Medical Hour on the notorious Adam Dunn Network. We thank Face to Base, our absolute incredible engineer that helps us put all this together. And once again, we thank Craig Salerno for being our, uh, bringing some real focus and light into this work and to make a real clear explanation of, of how this works. And we really appreciate you, Craig. Thank you, my brother. <laughs>
2: Thank you. Bro. This is awesome. And thank you, Mark. Thanks for coming on, Craig, and, and sharing. Yeah, bro, right
0: Thanks, guys. Reconscious Medical Hour right here on the notorious Adam Dunn Network.